This is Barry Knapp with Ironsides Macroeconomics. It's 6.20 a.m. Mountain Time on May Monday morning, May 22nd. S&Ps are up uh, a couple of points. The Treasury curve is a little bit higher in the back end and flat in the front end after a pretty good bull flattening or bear flattening move last week. Um, our note this week was titled Liquidity Climate Change. There were three sections to the note. First, the first section was um, a little bit about a potential productivity boom and the rally and anything AI related last week uh, offset against optimism around the debt ceiling and that aforementioned um, bear flattening move in treasuries. We then decided to dig really into this entire liquidity dynamic and how the Fed has permanently altered the liquidity environment and it's led to a series of severe storms going all the way back to the QE era. Uh, bank reserves used to be fairly small, something like $12 billion when the financial crisis kicked off and now um, they're much larger than that as we'll discuss, currently sitting around $3.2 trillion or so. And then we wrapped it up with um, <clears throat> a little bit of um, tax policy, government budget, um, almost theory, if you will, how outlays, receipts, and tax expenditures affect the economy and uh, and the budget. So to begin with, on the market outlook, the S&P 500 made a new high. The rally did broaden out a little bit last week. It was driven in part by debt ceiling optimism. Um, we did get that uh, bear flattening, though, in the Treasury market, a pretty good move. But we had a number a number of notable um, hedge fund investors that we happen to really respect come out and talk about AI and the potential of for a productivity boom. There was apparently a Goldman Sachs note that we didn't see that said that um, this could be a real driver of productivity over time. So we have some sympathy for that point of view. We've been looking for a capital or a productivity boom in the 2020s ourselves. We think that capital deepening is going to be um, increasingly evident. We're going to get much more investment into our physical plant. And uh, unlike Lael Brainerd, when she was at the Fed, who gave a speech that this would be a productivity negative, the onshoring, we think it'll be a productivity positive. China's productivity runs at 40% of hours, um, moving manufacturing back to the US and highly automated plants, I think will drive productivity up, not down. Labor dynamism, we expect to be uh, greater than it had been and, and labor productivity will be stronger for two reasons. One is mobility of the labor force having to do with the potential to work from home, although the street doesn't seem too enamored with that these days. Um, but uh, but also because of technology innovation adoption, which is multi-factor productivity or total factor productivity. And that's really where the AI comes in. <clears throat> and um, that has been our view that the benefits of digitization would accrue to the consumers of that technology from the producers. And you'd start to see it diffuse more broadly across the economy. We'll see it in healthcare, we'll see it in finance and in the industrial sector. So we do have sympathy for that view, but that's a longer term concept in the short term. We still think that um, the bigger factor here is going to be the oncoming uh, liquidity uh, tightening that we're, we're on the verge of as soon as there is an inevitable debt ceiling deal. Uh, on that front, we hear the main um, sticking point right now is the amount of budget 
cuts that are likely to take place. And there's some debate about what they're going to do in the first year. We also had a lot of Fed speak last uh, last week. It was in some ways um, almost infuriating, but we wrote a little bit about the different types of Fed speak. There was a conference on Friday morning involving former Ched, uh, Fed Chairman Bernanke and current Fed Chairman Powell. And um, Powell made it pretty clear he's, at least for now, in the pause camp, um, at least subtly. But but Bernanke differentiated between Odyssean and Delphic um, forward guidance with the former being what you do when the Fed makes, when we're at the effective lower bound or zero interest rates, and they're trying to uh, use it as a, a pledge to not change rates over time as a form of easing, as opposed to um, making a forecast. And that's all we're hearing right now is forecasts. That's not really the Fed speciality. So I think people are taking the Fed a little bit too liter literally these days, leaning on every Fed um, speech, quite frankly, they don't really know what's going on in the banking system and they don't really know what's going on in the labor market, particularly with respect to small businesses. So we'll leave it there. <clears throat> As we said, we still expect um, a pullback to something like 3850 on the S&P 500. After we get a debt ceiling deal, Treasury issuance picks up, liquidity tightens. Uh, but ultimately, we don't think it'll be any deeper than that. So there's been some decent stuff written about liquidity uh, there was a really good Bloomberg article that uh, got us really thinking about now that we're on the verge of, of another liquid, what we would describe as a liquidity storm, the Fed has, has changed um, the very nature of that system due to QE and the expansion of their balance sheet. So we thought it was worth going back through the history of it. <clears throat> um, if, you, if you go all the way back to the early days of the financial crisis, um, there was, as I said, very little in the way of bank reserves in the system. There was a lot of interbank lending. It was $12 billion when um, the global financial crisis began in September 08. By February 10, there was 1.23 trillion of bank reserves in the system. Now, some of the main uh, factors or features of this, we, we wrote about considerably more than a decade ago, back in our Barclays days, about how the period from QE2, Operation Twist, and QE3, the main uh, impact on markets was volatility suppression in the fixed income market, how the equity risk premium for cyclical stocks actually rose during that interval, CapEx was weak, the vol of vol was higher, local vol was lower, but the vol of vol in the equity market and fixed income markets were higher. Um, and if you go through this, trajectory for reserves, you really do see it. As I said, you know, by February 10, reserves were out to 1.23 trillion. But then by the summer of 2010, they were back to a trillion dollars. The mortgage portfolio was shrinking fairly rapidly. Um, QE2 then expanded liquidity to $1.68 trillion and treasury bill rates went negative. Um, again, it was fairly stable for a time. Operation Twist didn't really expand it. All it did was extend duration. But then QE3 three expanded bank reserves all the way out to $2.8 trillion. And again, in 2013, Treasury bill rates almost went, uh, went negative again. <clears throat> this is when um, the Fed began the RRP program to try and put a floor on rates. Obviously, that RRP program's taken on a life of its own. 
Then, if you recall, in 2019, reserves shrank to $1.5 trillion. In September, the repo rate spiked to 9% or so. Um, the Fed launched what we were calling at the time, not QE. It was $60 billion a month of bill purchases, and that's what they were doing when the pandemic struck. So if you then fast forward to 2021, when um, the Fed continued to buy <clears throat> agency MBS and mortgages, they really lit the housing market on fire. We went back through how correlation went to 0.97 for 10 months. They saddled the banking system with a bunch of high quality assets at the wrong price. And then we had what we were calling the shadow Fed in place. This is really the interplay with uh, Treasury and the Fed in 2021. Janet Yellen assumed her spot. She decided to drain the liquidity that had been built up in the Treasury general account at the Fed. It was about $1.7 trillion. She injected the bulk of that money into the system from February through September. That was more liquidity than the Fed provided in a shorter period of time. Bank reserves surged to $4.3 trillion. As we know, banks had nowhere to go with the money. Loan demand was tepid. They bought a trillion dollars worth of treasuries in 21. They bought uh, about $750 billion in 20 during the liquidity uh, injections from the Fed. They bought $450 billion of mortgages each of those couple of years, and now they own those uh, high-quality assets at the wrong price. In 2022, again, the Treasury was the main swing factor here by draining $900 billion of liquidity in the first four months of the year. That's what um, caused the beginning stages of the 27% um, or so stock market decline uh, in 2022. We also had the first year with negative stock and bond returns in uh, decades. Um, again, the Treasury was the big was the big player here, and um, it finally stabilized around October. Since October, uh, the hitting the debt ceiling meant that the Treasury couldn't issue. <clears throat> the liquidity that was created as a consequence of that was an offset to QT, and the markets have been stable ever since. So, we're now actually getting to a point where the Fed may find themselves having to end QT as uh, as soon as this fall. Um, I've spoken to a number of good sources that uh, really know the plumbing of the banking system, and they believe that $2.7 trillion of reserves is probably the lowest comfortable level of reserves. When the Treasury increases issuance and drains some $500 billion out of the system, we don't think it's coming out of RRP. We think it's coming out of bank uh, bank reserves and deposits. That'll put further pressure on the banking system and may force the Fed to end QT much earlier, as much as two years earlier than they expected to. Now, they may decide to continue to let the mortgage portfolio um, prepay and let that run down and even re reinvest mortgage prepayments into treasuries to keep that level of reserves at $2.7 trillion. But if that's going to be the case, the market would view that favorably and it would increase liquidity, but it's not going to really um, do the right thing for the yield curve in terms of uh, disinversion or steepening it. 
And it just shows how poorly they've, um, we think, or suboptimally is a fair way not to be pejorative, but we really think that the tightening process has been suboptimal, that they should have been more active with QT and less aggressive with rate hikes. And if they get forced to end QT sometime this fall, <clears throat> that would be for us a long-term negative, although the market would take it as a short-term positive. So finishing up here with uh, outlays, receipts, and tax expenditures through the budget negotiations, there's been some discussion about ending loopholes. Um, I think it's important to think about how these three different factors work. First on receipts, there's an empirical observation known as Hauser's Law that in essence says, regardless of the income tax structure, the pro uh, progressiveness of that or, or otherwise, the government collects between 17 and 18% of GDP in taxes. From our perspective, the only way they could change that would be with a national sales tax or a VAT tax. Um, under Truman and Eisenhower, we had a top marginal tax rate above 90%, but the tax law was littered with these various tax expenditures, also known as deductions, and the government got 17 to 18%. Um, the two Reagan tax reform bills ending in 19, the last one being in 1986, lowered the top marginal tax rate down to 28%, and the government got 17 to 18%. So that is really <clears throat> endogenous to economic activity and about as much as the government can expect to um, take in at any time. That means that if spending is at 24% of GDP as it is today on its way to 25%, that's exogenous to um, to economic activity. The Congress and um, administration decide on what that is. And at the current level, it's, it's wildly inflationary and inevitably will lead to a debt crisis. So those spending levels do need to get cut unless we're willing to completely change our, our tax structure. <clears throat> and that brings us to tax expenditures, the so-called deductions. The way to think we think about that is those are those really affect economic efficiency so broad-based tax expenditures like the r d um, accounting for r d and how quickly you need to amortize those costs the immediate expensing that we had on capital equipment until the um, democrats decided to let that expire at the end of last year those are broad-based tax expenditures where a market mechanism decides where that money is going to get invested. Um, instead, you could have narrow tax expenditures like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is some trillion dollars of tax expenditures or deductions to try and incent green energy investment or, or uh, renewable energy investment over the next decade. Again, those are narrow. That's the government deciding where capital should be allocated, and we think that makes the economy less efficient. But those do not raise revenues, because if you triangulate back to the receipts and um, just how much we can collect as a percent of GDP, it really doesn't matter how big the expenditures are or aren't, we're still getting 17 to 18% of GDP. So that's our theory on tax policy and how you should think about the current negotiations. So that's it for me this week. Um, We'll obviously get a note out next weekend. The audio summary of it won't come out till after the long weekend. Have a good week, everyone. Enjoy your holiday. Thanks.